Welcome to the Anonymous Third Podcast. It is so great to have you. I'm your host, Joe Chura. Today's episode is being posted during the month of September, which is National Suicide Prevention Month. So before I introduce my incredible guest and friend, Ben Mullen, I want to share some very real and sobering stats. More than 700,000 people die by suicide every year, which is one person every 40 seconds. That means potentially 80 people will take their own lives during the duration of this hour podcast. That is absolutely horrifying, and equally so, there are indications that for each adult who died by suicide, there may have been more than 20 others attempting suicide. For those of you that are listening that may feel like this is striking a chord within yourselves or a loved one, please know you're not alone. There are opportunities for help. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and Crisis Text Line are both available 24-7 with trained counselors to help. I found these stats on the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention website and will link these references and more in my show notes. My guest, Ben Mullen, is a friend of mine that I knew in high school that I recently reconnected with over the last couple years. He's a few years older and in school, he just seemed like a total badass with confidence and was just this natural leader. I didn't know until recently he had a horrible depression and attempted suicide at the age of 14 due to what he thought was an insurmountable health setback. I won't retell the story, we get into this a lot on the show, but what I love most about the conversation Ben and I have are the positive steps he has taken in his life from his success on a reality TV show, Sheer Genius, to starting the Ben Mullen Project, and also how he got into elite shape and started crushing Ironmans and ultra runs. So let's get into it, get your shoes on, give yourself some time for some mental health, Get outside and listen to this episode of the Anonymous Third Podcast with Ben Mullen. Ben Mullen, thanks for being here today. Joe Churro, what's up, man? <laughs> I've known you for many years, but I got to be honest, like when we went to high school together, you were a few years older than me. I've always saw you as this larger than life person. You were in rock bands and always doing something creative and cool. And then fast forward like a few years past high school and even I think past college, I don't remember the exact time frame, but I saw you on reality TV show. You were on the show Sheer Genius and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I know him, Ben Mullen. And from that point, you, you created the Ben Mullen Project. You've done all these amazing things in your life. But I know that things have not been easy for you. You've, you've had a, like, some crazy adversity. And when, when I got to know your story a little more, the year 1989 really sticks out to me as a pivotal year in your life because you were suffering from depression. Can you take us back there to that moment before we get too far ahead of ourselves and talk about you completing an Ultraman and doing all these incredible things that you've done since. Because I mm. think a lot of people can relate to being at a low point, and I believe that was yours. I'm sure there was other ones. When you're um, low point, possibly. So even, like, I didn't really know what depression was when I was that age. So I think when you're, like, eighth grade, freshman year, you're still kind of in, like, that learning process. I knew that I was like a hundred percent. So I had a skateboard accident. Uh, I was never a good skateboarder, but I just, fuck man, I, I always wanted to be a good skateboarder because it just looked cool, you know? So I got the, the Christian Hasoy, 
Yeah, I was you know, a Tony Hawk. You were a Tony Hawk guy? Yeah. yeah I, I had the Hasoy. I had the Santa Cruz Hasoy. And we were at Shrum School, and I, had a, I fell off the skateboard because, again, I just wasn't any good at it. And I developed a bruise that just wasn't like a normal bruise. So I fell on my hip, and it ended up being like this really big bruise. So I ended up showing my mom, and we went to the doctor to find out, like, what is this? So it ended up being that I had my platelets were all screwed up. So I got a blood test. I got results. And they didn't necessarily know what was going on with it. So I was told that I was basically like a borderline hemophiliac. And the beginning of my freshman year, they wanted me to wear a helmet when I went to school. Man, 14, like you're just still trying to figure out why your armpits stink. You know, use an Oxy-10 on your face to try to not break out, dousing yourself in Jakar and Polo Sport. And you got other things that are going on. So that was the first time ever I thought that my life might be in danger. And when you look at things in like an adolescent mindset, because imagine if you had to solve a really big problem and you were 14. Okay, and you can be silent and you could be introverted or you can be like a certain nerd about something or not afraid to talk to people. But depression, I don't even know if that's what it was. I thought that I was not going to live a normal life. When someone tells you something like, hey, for you to be normal, you have to wear a helmet. You can't get hit in the head. You can't play sports. You can't do this and that because there's a chance you might die. You don't know how to react to it. And you so, would die because you would... The trauma. You hit your head. The I trauma could get brain bleeding. Right. Uh, it could lead to other severities. So you basically like, hey, let's just put bubble wrap on it and pray for the best. I didn't know how to deal with it, and be, you know, not going into like the the psych, you know, the psychology behind it because again, you're so incredibly young. Uh, I opted to take my own life, and I failed, and I was 14. So. I woke up in the NICU unit of Children's Memorial Hospital in a, like, it was infants coming out of brain surgery because they didn't have a bed big enough for me. I was always a tall guy. I was always tall for no reason. I think I was like six feet when I was a freshman in high school. And they ended up finding out that I had a blood disorder called ITP. So my red platelets, I believe, were taken from my white. And I ended up having to get my spleen removed. So my body actually grew a secondary spleen and was messing with my platelets. So I had it removed when I was 14 after an attempted suicide. When you had attempted suicide, I know the story a bit, your parents were near you? I did it in front of my parents. Yeah. And was it just you didn't want to, you were just too embarrassed to go to school with this helmet on? You thought that was your only choice? Is that, or was there anything like leading up to that point? Or was that just the, the icing on the cake that you're like, I can't deal with life anymore? I'd rather die than be an outcast at that age. You already are having hard times fitting in. And I never really felt like, and I think a lot of people can kind of relate to that. You never really feel like you were the cool kid. You were always around it. You kind of had right. like your own lunch table. I was always the lunch table of all the, uh, the outcasts, like the renegades and the kids that were just good enough to basically go second string when it came to all the sports. And I am an overreactor, especially when I was younger. And for me, that was just basically the option. 
that I had. And, you know, you think about that decision-making like that as an adult, and obviously you would do things differently. But when your mind is underdeveloped as it would be in any form of adolescence, that was a viable option. It was a quick decision. And in that specific moment, that's what I did. You know, what's crazy is that I look at you as the cool kid. Like I looked at you as like the trendsetter and the leader of being creative. And like I had alluded to earlier, the rock star. And you were, you just had that prowess about you that you, I would have never known that, that history. So I guess going back to now you're 14, 15 years old, this happened to you, you find out you have this blood disorder. How do you manage to get through that part of your life? You don't have a choice. The option that I outed for it didn't work. So basically the only thing I did is I took the training wheels off of any form of safety. And you, the best analogy that I have with anybody that has a mindset of somebody that would attempt something like their own life is that most people when they're driving in a two-lane highway, they're not able to take the steering wheel and turn left and go into oncoming traffic. It's just like a, almost like an innate safety mechanism that most people have. It's kind of like you're on top of a, a high peak or a mountain and you're looking over. Like most people, when you get closer, you start your body starts to feel this rush of like, don't go closer to the the cliff because you're going to fall off. Correct. Right? Is it that same feeling? Correct. I don't have that fear. So I overcame that fear a long time ago and it never, ever goes away. It's constant. Even at the, the high point of what would be happiness or serenity and everything that you have like that's worth of value, once you cross that line, it's always something that's in the back of your mind. And from what I've been told, I've never been a hard drug guy or anything else, but it's very similar to people that have done really hard drugs and then gotten sober. It's basically you're always in recovery. It's always something that stays like in the back of your mind. So anything I've ever done through like my whole entire life, any success that I might have gathered through any of that, any admiration that I might have from somebody like yourself being like, I always thought that you were like the, the rock star and like this larger than life kind of guy. Absolutely. But I think what makes it more interesting is what fuels that fire. Why? Why do people do what they do? What is it about someone that's able to get to that point where other people might have a different opinion of that person than that person has of themselves? What, was there a sense that you're like, hey, if I'm going to be an outcast, I'm going to be the coolest outcast. I'm going to... I'm gonna, zig where other people zag, meaning like you may not have followed mainstream sports. You may not have been in football or basketball. I know the high school we went to, it was, I tried to explain to people how it's like, what TF North was like. Yeah. Like it wasn't like to be a cool kid, you not necessarily, you weren't necessarily in sports where other schools you, you were right. Like it's, and it's hard to explain. And that's probably another podcast in itself, but it, it seemed like you were, I like you took that weakness and you turned it into a power and you were like, if I'm going to be, again, if I'm going to be the outcast, I'm going to go all out and I'm going to do my thing. And then what happens is people start to look up to that and start following that. Did you feel that sense there that you were becoming a leader? When you get used to navigating in the dark, you develop almost like a sixth sense. It's like the fucking force, man. Yeah. You know, you kind of turn into like a Jedi. 
So I never looked for a way out of anything. I just got comfortable with the fact that I was a dark guy, you know, and I lived in it and I made the best of it. And the minute I was able to take all that aggression and all that like fear and anxiety, and I found another outlet for it besides self-loathing, that's when I realized I had this hidden power in me and like a potential thing. Because at the end of the day, yeah, I might have been a suicide, you know, a suicide survivor from my youth, but I'm also really creative. So how do I take the unknown fear, all these negative emotions, and instead of taking that out on myself, how can I create with that? Because you, anytime you have to work harder, it's more energy. You know, when you're happy or complacent and everything's going great, you don't work hard. Right. So if you never truly look at yourself as happy and complacent, you're constantly working for whatever it is that you want to do. So what I have noticed is that the imagination can be so incredibly powerful if you're able to tap into it. And if I don't have a fear of dying, I don't have a fear of trying. It's that simple. I like that. It's, it is true because you're, you've kind of already were at, again, I don't want to say the darkest point, but very dark point. And from now you're like, I'm navigating in the dark. Like I'm not afraid. I can do this shit with my eyes closed. Right. Yeah. So then let's progress a little bit. You're, you, you're in high school. I know you turned to music as an, as a big outlet back then for your creative side, especially. Can you take us through that? Like how, how did that become such an important part of your life? Fugazi 13 songs, that record, number one, waiting room, combat boots, shaved head, gorilla biscuits, angry Samoans. Start playing guitar, start playing bass, met other kids, uh, other outcasts and misfits and people that like to stay out late and go shopping at Hegwish Records and, yeah. you know, spend and their money. Place. Oh, it was awesome. And b- wearing band t-shirts and uh, I just started playing music and Nirvana came out, my head exploded, the Nevermind record came out and I just started really being influenced at the sounds that people were making that were non-mainstream. And that's when I truly found my identity and like the voice. And I'm like, man, it's not, it's not me. Like I, there's so many other people that feel the way I do, that think the way I do. But fuck, their music is just beautiful. So Nirvana, Nevermind, uh, Fugazi, 13 songs. And then I got into uh, NWA, when that yeah. came out in Easy E, totally, and I just started listening to gangster rap, punk rock, and uh, alternative music was a huge influence in me, and that was it. I was proud of something I used to be ashamed about, and I wanted to fly that flag as opposed to you know to burn it and not fly it at its highest highest of things. So now, in my life right now, at forty, however old I am, at forty six, I'm so proud of everything that I've accomplished and everything that I've overcome. Because Joe, everything I've overcome, it's all internal. It's all internal. You could be the saddest motherfucker in, in the world, but you're the only one that feels that way, right? You're having a bad day or a bad year or whatever, or you're, you have doubt. You're waking up in the middle of the night, you're clinching your teeth or anything else like that. 
you're the only one that has that. So how much of that is imagination? How much of that is just lack of creativity or sharing your emotions with somebody and just being completely honest and completely vulnerable? So I just flipped the script. Anytime I didn't know how to say it out loud, I knew how to, to create a sound about it. And there's just something about playing a bass guitar and a guitar and just screaming your fucking head off and watching kids dance to it. And I was able to experience things like that early on. And you want to talk about being hooked on a feeling, man. That was it. That was it. Was there a moment you remember from your first bands like playing? Because I saw you at the Metro in Chicago, which for those of you who don't know is... It's a smaller venue, but it's a fairly popular venue. It's not like any band can go play there. It's, uh, it, it, just to even get to play there is, is pretty awesome. And the band was Walcott back in the Walcott day. Walcott was awesome. Was, was there a time when you were on stage and you just reflected, like, how did I get here? Or what was that first feeling like when you were on stage performing? It smells like Teen Spirit, TF North, senior year, <laughs> stage show, like man. talent show? That was it. I had a, a pink PV Tracer guitar, me and this dude named Paul Johnson and this dude on bass named Russ Kaseka. I went up there and I did Smells Like Teen Spirit, man, and I felt like a fucking rock star. And that was it. Right in that, you know, right in that auditorium, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, right in that auditorium. Yeah. And that was it. I graduated high school and moved out of my parents' house like pretty much sooner than later. And I lived at a buddy of mine's house. He was still in high school, but his parents had converted. His name was Quint, Quint Cleaver. And his parents lived in Mokina and they converted his garage into a bedroom. So I just lived there for a while and I was playing guitar and he was a singer. And we kind of like had like a really weird, like psychedelic, like hardcore band that we were playing in called Quint, ironically enough. I got a job at a Supercuts right after I went to beauty school. And what made you want to go to beauty school? It seemed like it was going to be something cool to do uh, with my hands. And I was always fascinated with doing hair just in general. And where we grew up, Joe, in Cal City, there used to be a place called Hair Crafters. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman named Beverly that used to do my mom and grandma's hair. And we'd walk over there because it was right behind Trump. And I just liked being there. I'd sit under the blow dryer. I'd skim through uh, Better Homes and Gardens magazines and <laughs> fucking highlights and stuff. And one day I got my hair cut like Terminator 2 when that came out. Yeah. And that was it. I remember was getting it. my Val Kilmer Top Gun haircut, the spikes, Fantastic Sam's. And Hell yeah. And then you would style it and yeah. spray it and yeah. go to school for sure. Yeah. I learned how to French bead when I was uh, back in high school. I had a girl teach me how once in an earth science class with uh, Mr. Butler, ironically enough. Oh, yeah. And that was it. So I went to beauty school right after high school. It was either going to do that or I was going to go be an HVAC guy. I was going to learn heating and air. So how did you go from then working at Supercuts to open up your own business? From Supercuts, I bounced around, and I ended up at a place called Armando Vasquez, which was in Lansing, Illinois. And it would be just like a, like a day spot, like a nicer type place. I ended up moving to Homewood, Illinois for a while. And while walking down the street to go to the Ridgewood Tap to buy a six-pack of Hornsby's when I was first getting into <laughs> ciders, this gentleman by the name of Joe Pachoric came out and said, hey, you're the fellow that works at Armando's. Uh, me and my wife are selling our salon. Uh, we'd love for you to come take a look at it. So I went out with Joe, and Joe's one of my, still one of my best friends. I call him my salon dad. And for $16,000, he sold me a small little space called CC Express 
with a full clientele, employees, and like the whole nine yards. So I took eight grand on a high interest credit card and borrowed the other eight grand from my grandma, God rest her soul, and I was an entrepreneur. That was it. Was there any nervousness to that or were you just like, screw it, let's, let's go and do this? I'm not afraid of anything. Yeah. So again, like what's the worst that's gonna happen? I'll lose money? Like, all right. I got nothing really going on right now. Like I'm, you know, I'm living a cool kind of life. I live by a train station. It's a, you know, it's Wednesday and I'm drinking Hornsby's and just kind of hanging out. So I figured why not? It was worth a shot. And I had that place for about two years and it made pretty good money, especially for me at that point, was able to save a bunch of cash, bought a house in Kel City and the journey just began, man. And I've basically lived the same life since I left to go live in Quent's bedroom in his garage, uh, even at 46 right now, I've been doing the same stuff my whole entire life. It never, that's it. I haven't had a boss since I was 21. I've always played music. Uh, I've always been an artist and that's my whole entire life. And just as much as somebody would look at that and kind of be envious, I'm envious of people that are like, I have a retirement. And like, hey, I got health insurance. I'm like, whoa, what's that like? You know, (laughs) holy shit, you're on a salary? Wow, that's amazing. So that's just been my whole entire life. It's just been based around hair, music, art, and like-minded individuals. So I'm possibly one of the luckiest people you'll ever meet, man. Yeah, I love that you you and I went for a run before this podcast and we were were chatting a bunch. And um, what really kind of stuck out to me is that you don't, you don't work, or you work to live. You don't live to work. Like no. you, you truly, you're truly a minimalist in the sense of like, what do I need to be? And and happy is a strong word. Like you and I talked about, it's not this definitive thing. But no, but what do I need to have joy in my life? I think it's consistency. So you know, over the last twelve years when I ended up on TV and started working for like these major, major product companies and making way above what I needed to live. If you don't spend a lot of money, you can make a lot of money. So the less you spend, congratulations, you just gave yourself a raise. Mm-hmm. So number one, why are you working? Number two, what are you working for? And I realized early on from having some failed businesses and everything that I had at one point was successful, but when it's not fun anymore, or it's not enjoyable anymore, I'm over it, plain and simple. You know, so my whole thing, Joe, is like, it's a line for me, right? I try to keep this consistent line. Decline freaks me out because it takes so hard to get back up to that line again. So I'm not looking for constant growth, I'm looking for stability. And you talk to anybody that's been an artist for as long as I have, like a full timer, you know? Yeah, stability's huge. You get a couple key people in your life that find value in you, and those are the ones that you work with the most. But beyond that, it's just remaining constant, like the whole entire time. So I know you you did some cool stuff with the business too, and you morphed it into a record store and a salon and a, and a lot of other really interesting things, and it, and just made it you an extension of your personality, but. I want to fast forward to the place where I talked about in the beginning of this podcast, where I saw you on a reality TV show. Oh, yeah. And 
how that even ended up happening? Man, I was like, I think with Bossa Nova debt, Bossa Nova was the record store you were just talking about, and then just like credit card debt, you know, from businesses that didn't fail and just me being like, screw this, I'm out, I'm gonna go to Amsterdam for two weeks with my buddy Alan. I probably required just about $100,000 worth of debt. Now, when you take away your source of income, like your business, I was doing hair out of my house in Kell City and playing in bands. So my monthly payment was more than my mortgage. So I had to pay $1,000 a month back in 2006, maybe 2005, to be at zero. So, and that didn't stress you out? Oh, yeah. Stretch me out. Man, I'm surprised I can sit down and have this conversation without yelling. Yeah, it was beyond stretched out, brother. So it was... Or stressed out. Like you didn't, you didn't internalize that. Like some people would look at $100,000 and probably go back to the same place you were when you were in high school. Like well, state what, of depression. Like how did you get through that? I said, well, there's only one more thing to do here. Let me just create more debt and try to get myself out of this. You know, I've got myself into this mess. Yeah. Uh, and again, like when we had the record store, when 9-11 hit and Napster came out, that was gone. It was just like this quick thing. Everything just got digitized really quick. And I was, you know, remember LimeWire? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. He probably still got some hard yeah. drives or some yeah. MP3s or some, yeah. So we ended up getting rid of all that. And I was at a point where I was cutting hair out of my house in Cal City. And then I put myself on Craigslist for somebody that would uh, work on TV, film, and media because they used to have a section called TV, film, and media that you would be able to sign up for. So I ended up getting some freelance gigs in the city. And there was a woman by the name of Lee Jones that hired me to work on this movie called 52577, which was a uh, movie about the day Star Wars came out. And when you say work on a movie, you were, you were new in hair. I was the hairstylist for it, yeah. And... One of the wardrobe people that I worked with prior on a, a juicy fruit ad for teen people, I think is what it was. I, random stuff, right? All this random stuff. I ended up getting a phone call from this woman named Lee because Bravo was looking for a straight tattooed guy that had a uniqueness for about him and kind of that like accent. And she's like, if I got the guy for you. So she's the one that put me in contact with Bravo. Mm -hmm. So Bravo calls me on the phone one this day. This is what year, Ben? 2006. Summer of 2006. Okay. I think. Yeah, because 2006, 2007, Joe. So I said, hey, we're going to film this reality show about hairdressing. It's kind of like a Top Chef. And at the time, I was a Bravo-holic. I'd watch Top Chef and Project Runway and all these things. Uh, are you interested? And I said, well, ironically enough, yeah, I'm like one second away from, you know, filing bankruptcy and actually doing a show myself. So where I was going, before I got on the TV show, what I was going to do is I was going to just, I was like, fuck it. If I don't pay this back, I'm just going to file bankruptcy. I had a buddy that was living in Vegas. I'm just going to go out there, get a job at a hoity toit salon and uh, audition for Blue Man Group. You know, I said, if, you know, when in, when in doubt, man, when in doubt, Joe, be a carny. Yeah. Just hit the road. Just say, fuck it. Just go. Because again, like, what am I? I'm not afraid of anything, especially yeah. in that regards, right? Like, and, what's the and, worst thing? too in your life, were you single? Yeah. No kids? No, no. Okay. okay. My wife and I started having kids uh, when we were 40. Yeah. So, no, I had really 
you know, I had parents that were handicapped that were close by and which is why I always lived like really close to that area to, you know, take care of them and just kind of be there for them if they needed it. But I was going to borrow money on a credit card. I was going to get an an RV, which at the time I still think I had the Walcott RV. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I was going to do a documentary mockumentary on hair and fashion. And I was going to call it hair to the throne. And I was going to dress like Cedric, the entertainer with a fucking derby and like a red flower (laughs) and like a, like an Easter suit, you know? And I was going to go all over these like rural salons and just interview like the stylists and see how they lived. And, you know, I've always been fascinated at uh, movies and documentary stuff. And one of my favorite movies is this movie called Gummo. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Okay. Freaky. Love it. Demented. Absolutely. (laughs) So I wanted to do like a hairdresser version of the movie Gummo. Oh my God. I do not recommend that movie, but it's dark. Um, so that was my, so I'm telling Bravo all this, like, well, this is, this was my backup plan. Like I'm trying to get out of debt. And they said, well, if you win this contest, you'll win a hundred thousand dollars. And that's what I owed. And I was like, fucking, can you imagine if all of a sudden out of nowhere, I'm at like this financial crunch point in my life, all of a sudden out of nowhere, I go on TV to compete with hairdressing. Okay. Which is just so ironic and then I win all that money back and then I get a fresh start. Like it would have been the Cinderella story. Like, you know what I mean? Like the whole, yeah. the small town guy it would have been like the movie. What's that movie where he's shooting basket Hoosiers? Hoosiers what's, okay, yeah. totally. To- Gene Hackman, right? Yep, yep. So I fly out, I do the show and they asked me, um, no, actually prior to that, they said, we need you to make an audition video. And when I went out to meet with the production people, it was instant. Like they just, they, we fell in love, you know, they're like, you're perfect for the show, but we got to go through the protocol. Can you make a video? So at the time I was working with this uh, DJ guy named DK, we called him Freak DK. And he did the beats and I did the guitar part and I made a song called Haircuts in the Summer. And cause at the time I was working out of my house and Joe, like I had a lot of debt, man, was I having fun. I had, you know, we had a steady supply of of ganja and recording equipment and creative people. My house was a very safe place. So I sent him a music video of me rapping and cutting hair. My buddy Nick, I begged to come out from Detroit. I said, dude, I have no money, but this is the opportunity that I have. Will you come out here? I need us to stay up for two days and make this video. And Joe, I made the video. I sent it in and I did it. I got it. And there's haircuts in the summer. Haircuts in the summer, man. You can find it on YouTube on Nick's page. I don't even have the video for it. Like it was yeah. just something that we just threw together. I'll play, a, I'll play some of it if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're not, I'll link to it in the audio version of the, of the in the show notes because it's an awesome song. We listened to it this morning. Too. Oh, good, good. You guys were jamming it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. pumping it, doing some poolside jams. So that was it. I ended up going on the show and uh, Jacqueline Smith was the host. And again, like you got to think about the Cinderella story. So imagine if I was to get flown out to LA for making a hip hop video. Okay. Like, you know, like, you know, that hip hop changed my life, dude, for sure. I got on television and started this whole new life for me from a hip hop video. And the, the irony in that is just right. fucking what the hell? <laughs> yeah. What am I? Eminem? Yeah. So Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, you know, totally. I'm dropping F-bombs, I'm smoking weed, it was doing Bikram yoga. It was just the weirdest thing I could have ever thought of. So I went out, got second place. Uh, So I ended up being on television for 
seven years in 44 countries. Wait, you you skipped over a lot there. So well, there's so it, much. Yeah. There's I'm, so much. Let's stay here for a second, though. So what okay. was it like then? You show up in L.A., you're with a whole new cast of character. Oh, dude, so I showed up at the airport. Like, I got picked up in a white fucking work truck, all right? No back windows. It was like I was about to get sold into, like, sex trafficking, man. Were they, when you, when you say no back windows, were there cameras back there? No, no, no. I got picked up in, like, a white utility van. Oh, okay. And somebody driving it, like a PA, you know, came and picked me up sure. at, the, uh, at the airport, and I just jumped right in. I'm like, where are we going? We're going to a hotel. So I had to go to a hotel. I had to do like a little bit of a test. I had to fill out a psychological evaluation card. So imagine if I would have flown out there and not passed the psychological evaluation card. Test for passing and failing. I don't know. I didn't (laughs) fail, you know. So I just apparently I'm, you know, because you got to figure they're putting you in a reality, like real world type situation. And there's forks and knives, and they just don't want to make sure. Like, so it's one of those like you don't want to harm anyone types. I guess. I guess. Okay. Yeah. If it had to have been. Yeah. And then well, we started something like, have you ever thought about taking your own life? And you're like, yes. And they're like, okay, cool. Like you're great for the show. Like how did, Oh, I think, no, no, it wasn't <laughs> like, anything like that. By, by any chance like, when you're 14, yeah. have you ever tried? No, there wasn't no hell. No, there wasn't any of that. Uh, but they just, they run you through the ringer, man. You know, you talk yeah. to a, a, a psychiatrist and all these other things. And well, they want to make sure you're, you, they don't get too far into the show and you're a liability and I'm killing people, yeah. <laughs> stabbing people I'm like yeah. a serial killer. Yeah. I yeah. I can see that. <laughs> no, totally. So we did, we ended up filming. It took like a month to film. And then they started, the first thing that they do when you make a television show like that is they make all the commercials for it. And you sign this like million dollar liability contract that you won't talk about like the, the show. And they're pretty like, okay, here's the deal. You cannot disclose any of this. Otherwise, like, you know, it's going to be tough to breathe is basically, you know, how they sell it to you. So ads started coming out. And then the next thing I know, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm Bravo. Like you see my head pop up and I'm yelling and I got sear, you know, scissors in my hands. Yeah. I was in like an ad, like in People Magazine. I was on the side of a bus, like climbing hair, like in New York. I was getting played on like American airline films, you know, like when you're flying in a yeah. plane. And then people just started calling me. They're like, dude, are you going to be on a TV show? I'm like, I can't talk. If I talk about it, I'm going to have to pay you like a million dollars. I don't know how this works. And then the show started airing. I uh, made some friends with it, did really well on it, you know, ended up buddying up with Vidal Sassoon there and met a bunch of just friggin' legends. And then I came back home. And what was something that surprised you the most from being on that reality TV show, like the, the actual set itself and the people and the, the competition side of it? It wasn't anything, to be honest with you. It just felt like I was making a television show. It okay. didn't, I didn't really feel. Did it feel real? Like, it was. That was my life for like a month, but yeah. I, I, I didn't care if I like lost or it wasn't. They didn't, uh, try to like, f- try to force you into a character, did they? Or like, I, how was I'm, that? I'm out of the box, brother. I'm like an action figure. I'm like a G.I. Joe guy. Like I right. already am my own character. So it was, I got along with everybody. Uh, any altercation that I might have had, I would always talk to off camera. I'm like, look, man, I, I don't want to look like an asshole on TV. Like plain and simple. I don't care what it is, but I'm here to, you know, I'm here to win money, man. So let me see if I can just win right. this thing and let's just kind of. I would just always think they would try and create some controversy behind the scenes to get. Dude, that you, somebody, you sign a contract when you make these shows that if somebody dies in your immediate family, you don't have to be notified till after production. 
they can work you for 16 hours and not feed you to create your, you know, irritability. Right. So there's, there's a system behind it to make you lash out. Like it's already there. Right. Got it. So, and I'm just not the kind of guy that you would ask to like, can you make it seem more emotional? It's like, fuck you. No, you know what? I'm not, I, no, it's not going to happen. But there was none of that though. It was a very easy, fun experience for me. And I didn't really think about it too much. But when that show started to run, though, oh, my God, man, everybody knew who I was. It was crazy. Like, even when I would go to that bank on Burnham Avenue by the pawn shop, you know, I'd walk in and people would be like, hey, oh my, how's, what's Tabitha like? Oh, yeah. my God, I host Jack. It was crazy. <laughs> I went to Australia and got recognized at a friggin' uh, rugby game from the girl that was selling the, the T-shirts. She was like, hey, I don't mean to bother you, but I'm watching a lot of American television. Is your name Ben? The first two years, I would have to have a bodyguard when I would go to uh, hair shows. A bodyguard. That's incredible. It's nuts. So, so during that show, you met Fidel Sassoon. How important was that relationship, or what did you learn from him? He told me to get into education, and I believed him. So he was the one that put me on my path with teaching. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So you're a basketball player. If you became friends with Michael Jordan and he told you that you should probably be a high school coach, guess what you'd be doing? Coaching high school basketball. It's how do you... So I think sometimes that your, your destiny or your fate might lie into people that you, you idolize and respect. So that was the pivotal point with me that said, okay, wow, I, I've obtained enough knowledge and experience that now it's my turn to teach. And when you were, I, I know it was down to you and I think Tabitha. No, Anthony. His name was Anthony. Oh, Tabitha got fan favorite and then her own show oh, and uh, eventually turned into a question on Jeopardy. I mean, she's a celebrity. <laughs> she's, a, she's awesome, too. She's one of my better friends. Uh, it was me and the student named Anthony Morris, man, and uh, came down to the, to the wire and uh, he won. And I got second place and that was it, you know, flew back home and had some product companies call me. I had one company specifically, a product company named Joico, that said, hey, we want you should come work for our company. And at the time, Tabitha was working for them. And then they asked me if I wanted to uh, fly out to New York and do Roger Waters hair from Pink Floyd. And I said, yeah, that sounds amazing. And then on a handshake, I worked with them for 12 years and traveled the world. That's incredible. Throughout the whole show that I can recall, you were authentically yourself. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you feel like the show did to change you or to change your personality in any way that you, you didn't like and then you had to get back? No. It, I became public instead of private. I think that's the biggest thing when you're in a situation like that. It's so extraordinary. You are now a public person. End of story. There's no private... There's no walking into a place. And it's completely different now. This is like, fuck, what, 14 years ago? Right. Looks good on a resume. You know, it's like you kind of got street cred. I got street, I'm like the Fonzie. I'm like Fonz, <laughs> you know, Henry Winkler from Happy well, it was Days. It like the first hair show. It was the first competitive televised hair anything. Yeah. And it was huge. It played all over the world. So public person as opposed to private person. So then I had to learn what that was all about. And I've had, I would, I'd be lying if I wouldn't say that the conversations that I've had with myself, like in the mirror, hey, are you up for this? You know, you're on. Like people are going to start really listening to what you tell them. 
And that was the difference. It's like, ooh, you know, someone's going to be like, hey, somebody might look up to me now. Somebody might come to me for advice and they're really going to listen to what I have to say. Do I want that responsibility? And am I ready for it? And that took a while, a hard while. So I know now you or in the last few years, you changed your life a ton from a health and wellness standpoint. So at the time you were doing the show, again, this is more than, or this was about a decade ago or over a decade ago. Were you finding yourself in a lifestyle because you were traveling and, and doing all this stuff that you were playing defense a bit more in terms of healthy eating and like you were drinking too much? Like what, what was the catalyst for you to realize that you needed to do something with regards to your health? Alcohol has always been the devil, man. I'll be completely honest. It's always been the devil. It's, I've never had a relationship with it that I lost anything as far as like a tangible type of item. I didn't lose my home, didn't lose Ange, my wife, but it was just one of those things that was just the devil, man. I couldn't break the chain of addiction with that at all, right? So yeah, when you travel, it's, it's a party, right? You, you go out for drinks and you do this and do that. Uh, but Joe, I was in bed every night at 10 o'clock. I had a curfew that I would set for myself. And the reason why I was, I was able to get such longevity out of this industry that's given me, hair industry has given me so much, man. And I've given it my heart and soul uh, is because at the end of the day, I'm a fucking professional, man. So I don't mix anything. When I'm there to work, I'm there to work. And it's that conversation that you have with yourself in the mirror I am going to lead by example. End of story. So I never really had any like major, major down points with stuff. I mean, granted the flying, you know, would definitely be a lot of things. And there was definitely times where I was just so exhausted because I had businesses and everything else. And there'd be definitely triggers that would throw me into a very, very, very dark place. But this time around, that was different from when I was younger, is that when I got in that dark place, I would grab a piece of paper and a pencil, and I would start writing song lyrics. So it got to the point, man, where if I wasn't producing, I would just focus on the darkness again and tap into that brilliance and kind of go back with it and forward with it. So I learned a ton about uh, myself, about hairdressing, uh, but more importantly, about being like a mentor and like people that need to look up for. So I got really into leading by example. It's like you can, you can talk the talk, but motherfucker, are you walking the walk? Because if you're not, you're a fucking salesman. And I hate people like that, mm-hmm. especially people of power that are able to influence other people. Like, hey, I'm going to give you some advice, but I'm not going to practice what I preach. Not me. Everything that I say this is what I feel like you need to do. I'm doing it because I'm living that. So when I give you experience and you ask me a question, I'm doing it for my own personal life as opposed to just being a quick-witted thinker and using common sense as a weapon. So you went from though this period of traveling, speaking, teaching to completing an Ironman. Absolutely. How did that even transpire? I quit working. So my mom and dad passed away within like a period of time of like 16 months. And, and this, was, this was what year? 
2017 and 2018, I think. Might have been two, yeah, 2017, 2018. And I went back to the same place that I did mentally uh, when I was 14. I didn't see value and beauty in the world anymore. I felt like I was up against something. And I went to probably, quite possibly, the darkest place that I've ever gone to as a human being. And in order for me to get out of it, I had to be incredibly open and honest with like my wife and like my friends. And I ended up getting counseling uh, for suicide. And the woman's name that I went to, I'll just kind of keep undisclosed. I don't know if there's privacy you know, regulations or anything else. We'll just call her Miss M. And with four weeks of going through therapy, she was the one, the first time ever, of somebody that said, she's like, honey, I don't think that you're sad or suicidal. She's like, I think you're a genius. And she actually said the word genius to me. And I looked at it as an opportunity to prove my worth, you know? And she said, you just need something to do with that energy. Have you ever thought about running? Rest is history. I started Googling it, and my wife Angie said, hey, you need to watch this movie called The Iron Cowboy. I watched it, and that was my first inkling about Iron Man. And then a couple days go by, I'm watching YouTube, and then the Paralympics came on, and I watched the Paralympics, Joe, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and literally, my soul left my body, man. It's the only way to explain it. And I said, I ain't shit. I'm weak. I'm a fucking puss. It drives me crazy. I want to be, if these guys can do it, so could I. So I went to Kohl's because, you know, obviously any good decision starts with the trip to Kohl's. You're going to need new underwear if you're going to be a badass. So I bought a jogging suit, like run DMC and some. It's funny because uh, you got one of those big postcards in the mail. Oh, fucking with the 20% Kohl's cash. You, <laughs> you can pay me with Kohl's cash. You don't even need to bring cash. Cash money or Kohl's cash. And I bought a pair of running shoes. And within three months after never running, I ended up losing just about 60 pounds and I was able to run 13 miles. So I told my buddy Keith and he's like, you should sign up for an Ironman. Uh, so I signed up for Mont-Tremblant in Quebec, which I guess is one of the most difficult uh, terrains in North America. I had 17 hours to complete it and I did it in 16. So I became an Ironman. And again, you do something like that then you look around and you're just kind of like, wow, this is a whole other world. There are other people that are now Iron Man. So I wasn't just, I didn't base myself around my occupation anymore because I think you can identify what you do professionally all the time. Yep. But when I started watching different videos and listening to podcasts and people talk, I got myself out of the hair industry and that mindset because you know, social media came around on Instagram and there was just this huge shift in what I do professionally. Like Instagram and technology came along and there was just this whole new generation of people that were going to replace people like me. So I could either compete with that and, you know, create more time, more stress, more work, more anxiety, more depression, more triggers that might involve with it. Or instead of killing myself, I can just destroy every fucking thing around me and burn it down to the ashes. So I don't even have a chance of repairing it whatsoever. So you've heard, don't burn the bridge. Mm -hmm. I blew that motherfucker up. 
I got rid of the product company. I got rid of the salon, everything for the simple fact that I needed to start fresh. So it wasn't me anymore that I wanted to take it out on. It was everything else around me. And that was the switch. I'm not going to put the gun on myself. I'm going to walk in that motherfucker like, I'll say hello to my little friend, and I'm just going to get rid of everything that's all around me. I'm going to bury it. I'm going to set it on fire, and now I'm just going to focus with what's in front of me. And it was hard. Oh, man, it was hard. Because you identify who you are from your successes. I don't care who you are. I don't care how rich you are, how big or anything. You are your successes. That's your world. So even if it's broken, that's still your world. So when I got rid of all of that, and Angela, my wife, is the greatest human being in the planet, she's the one that said, you know, just quit. And I did. And for that year, when I was going through the grieving of losing a mom and dad, now I lost a business. I lost employees. I also lost a product company that I spent 12 years with traveling the world with. So I also lost financial backing. So I made it. So I had to become successful. There's no other way. I took the training wheels and right off that motherfucker and threw them against the wall. And that was it. And anytime I couldn't think, anytime I couldn't trigger any kind of emotion whatsoever, I said, let me change the way I look. Maybe if I change the way I look, it'll change the way I feel. Sure as shit, man, it worked. So you're intentionally created adversity, intentionally burnt the bridges so you would be forced to start over to rebuild your life in a place where you identified with. I had to build it. There was no rebuilding. I destroyed it. I'm not rebuilding anything. It's down to the, it's down to the foundation. It's, it's rubble. It's, I've already put the cranes in, I've removed everything else, and I've dug up the dirt, man. Nothing left. And I said, okay, there's only, the only place I can go right now is, is, is up because I have nothing. Still got my house. I still got my, my wit about me and all these other things, but this is all I'm going to do. And one of the things that we talked about earlier is weight. And you like to feel light, you said. I like to feel weightless. Yeah, yeah I travel you, light, man. You, and I think that goes back to what you were saying about being on, I, I, I would even say like it's like a water line, right? Like you're, you want to be, you want to be surfing. Like you want to be on the water line. You necessarily don't want to be flying over too high above it. You want to be under it. You just want to be stable. But you created a point of instability so you can dig yourself out of it or I should say, you know, playing on that analogy, like diving down a bit to get back up. Mm -hmm. Has that, have you felt that lightness translate into more joy? I'm never stressed out. It's crazy. So I don't know if it's joy, but I live a very joyful existence. You know, it's the things that bring me joy are other people. Uh, and those two people would be my wife and my son. So to see them smile and to see them feel fulfilled, that's the main reason why I do what I do and the only reason why I do what I do. So how has fatherhood changed things for you? His birth was nuts. So when 
first of all, I was told I couldn't necessarily have children. And that's a funny story, man. I don't think we got time for me to exactly go in the embarrassment of what I had to go through, man. So I had to end up going to a urologist, right? So of course they got to, they got to take a sample, right? You got to get a specimen they got to analyze it and stuff. So the guy that I took the doctor with, he told me to drop it off and it, and it wasn't the hospital. It was across the street from the hospital. So he told me it was this office. So I go home, do what I need to do, take my baby batter, throw it in some cargo dad shorts and hop on a moped, which even makes it more ridiculous. And I had the beard and wearing a Slayer t-shirt. It was like something out of a friggin' Rob Zombie movie. I walk into the office. It was the wrong office. So I walked into a pediatric office. And they walked in. They said, sir, can I help you? I said, yes, I'm here to drop off my semen. They said, excuse me? Joe, humiliating. Like, you can't even imagine what that, it was just the worst. So I was 30, 30 minutes I had to drop this stuff back off. It took me 37 minutes. So when the doctor called, he didn't really know if I was able to have a child or not. So Angela and I, we focused on businesses, you know. So long story short, Marco comes. But Marco came in with a bang. So when Angela was pregnant, we went in for a, a sound test where they monitored the baby's heart rate. So Marco's heart stopped beating inside of Ange. And then it picked up again. Every time Ange would have a contraction, Marco couldn't breathe. So at that point, that whole entire joy of being a parent was hardcore interrupted. So then we had to wait for three hours of just, and I'd sit there with the doctor and you'd see the heartbeat, then all of a sudden it would flatline. And then it would go back up. So we pulled him out, he was kicking and screaming, but we didn't know if, how it was going to work. We didn't know if he was going to be brain dead or anything yeah. else like that. So we get him back and we have our baby with us and nurse comes in and says, I don't like his color. So they did more tests on him and they put, ended up putting him in the NICU unit and the nurse comes over and says, I don't know how to tell you this, but we can't necessarily locate the heart. So what do you mean? It's beating. He's alive. He said, well, it just seems like it's turned around. So we had to wait the first two or three days uh, for a cardiac pediatric cardiologist to come in and examine him. So for those two or three days when he was born, we were in the NICU unit by a, basically like a helicopter pod. Cause if for some reason my son would have went into cardiac arrest, they weren't able to facilitate at that hospital. And I think everyone's got that moment where God or prayer, it was fear. Like I've never experienced but I think it was the universe telling me that if I'm going to be a father, I need to love more. So I looked at it as like a teaching and like a blessing. Long story short, a year later when we took him home and we knew that he had, it looked like a little hole that he had in his heart. So it's called dextrocardio. He's fine. Nothing's wrong. He's going to have a normal life for the rest of his life. But it took a year for us to clear that. 
So the first year of being a parent. But he was out of the hospital in a few days, right? It took about a week. A week, okay. So it's basically what dextrocardio is, is that the heart is just reversed. We just didn't know if it was properly wired to the point where it needs to be. So after a year, we took him to this uh, Dr. Sunthart was the guy's name. Real tall Japanese guy, you know, and super nice man. And we brought him back after a year, gave him like another EKG. And he looks at us and says, I never need to see him ever again. So when he was one, I think that's when the, the parenting really started to happen because we just loved him so much because he had already been through so incredibly much as a little guy that we brought him back home and then we started our family. And my mom and dad, luckily, were able to be grandparents until he was about two, two and a half and three. And the joy that I got from my mom and dad, watching them like pick up the baby and be called grandma and grandpa and everything else was by far like the proudest moment of my life. And then when I quit work, I've been a stay home dad since he was three and a half. I mean, how lucky am I to do that, right? So being a parent, uh, it's the greatest thing I've ever done. And my wife and I are, she's an amazing mother and I have a family. I had a wife, I had mom and dad, but you know, obviously they're, they're gone, they're in heaven. Now I have like my own family. And to watch him grow and to do anything like I'm doing this podcast because of Marco. I make videos, I do shows, I cross finish lines, I get medals, I do it for my son to let him know that like anything's possible. And I'm glad he doesn't see the, the version of me that was all stressed out. He sees the version of me that knows that anything's impossible if you, you know, fight through the pain and walk through the darkness. So that's you know, my, my, my goals have changed. You know, my goals have changed. It's to always set an example for our son and most of all, too, for Ange, too. You know, I want Ange to look at me as a, as a rock, as strength. You know, I don't want to bring anybody down, man. So the lighter you are, uh, the less, the easier you are to pick back up, man. Yeah, I love, first off, I'm so glad Marco's okay. He's fine. That's, that's, but I'm telling you, man, it was like the universe. It was like the universe. Yeah. Well, it just made you really understand the power of being a father and having a child and everything that can go wrong. It's a miracle that humans can pro, you know, can procreate and have, and we have children. Insane. It's just, yeah. It, it Women are friggin' is. so strong. Like, it's just... If men had babies, there'd only be like three of us, <laughs> you know, like literally. So I, and I love what you said about leading by example. And I think when I, I know hearing your story from at least my perspective, it's, it's almost like the, the catalyst of what happened to you gave you the chance to be authentically yourself from the beginning because you were in the darkest of days at 14 years old and you're like screw it but it's that authentic character that I've seen you over the last few decades now that we've been friends and have known each other that you never waver from it's always authentically been if that's a video or turn on are you speaking and life is so much 
more fulfilling with people like you that are creative, that are unique, that aren't followers, that are leaders. I just wanted to, to say that to you because uh, even you know the stuff that you're doing now and taking all of your lessons and putting that into things like the Iron Man and things like being a father and being light and really focusing on what's important in life. And that is what I would summarize being present in the, in the moment. Yeah. I don't live in the past, man. I never think about it. I'm a present future type guy. The past is only good for credibility. Like, well, why the fuck should I listen to you? Well, this is my past. This is what I've done. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Now you got my attention. But if you carry the past with you, though, you never evolve. Never evolve. Present and future. Unless the past was so detrimental, whether it's your health, you know, losing a limb, or anything else like that, it, it really doesn't really affect your current status of today. Yeah. And it definitely has nothing to do with tomorrow. But if you hold on to the past, though, I'm telling you, man, it's too much weight. You're not going to be able to carry it. You're not going to be as strong. You, you can't lift that. Eventually, you're going to get sore. Things are going to break. I love the quote, you can't sail on yesterday's wind. Uh-uh. That's what it, that's what often when you have success in life, and I, I think success is not a, a defining word. That's why anonymous there was created, right? So sure. Go back to that story. I've said it enough on this podcast, but it's, it, it's truly that. Like you think you're going to hit something and then all of a sudden you're going to wear the success badge, but it's something you have to prove every day. And, and to me, it's just, having a win, putting a W on the board every day. And that just means you're playing offense. You're not letting someone else dictate exactly your, you know, your life. And every day isn't perfect by any means, but I think, uh, you've clearly done that. So I think as we wrap up, I want to know what's next for Ben. Driving home. I mean, literally, man, I know that we had the Spartan thing on the books, uh, for Tahoe in a couple of weeks. And I, unfortunately I, tore some tendons in my thumb uh, while training. I train all year long and injury is just part of any type of preparation for anything. So I will not, I'm going to be, I wanted to do it. I wanted to lead. I wanted to lead, man. I wanted to run with you guys like wolves uh, through the mountains of that. And, you know, thanks for letting me, uh, thanks for getting me to get a chin up bar and some hand strength and stuff. I ended up being a little bit stronger than I thought I was. So I was all ready for the event and I got to push back till, uh, I think March of next year, I might go out to Southern California and just knock out the beast real quick and go home just to, just to do it. You know, and we'll see how this goes. Maybe I'll do it. Perfect. Perfect. With you, or maybe I'll run away. And so I think what's the, well, yeah, totally. Let's, let's go. Let's go. Let's drive. Uh, I got the RV. Let's, um, I think like what's next for me on physical is that I want to run a hundred miles so bad. I want to do a hundred mile race, like really, really, really bad. I just want to do it. But beyond that, I think what's next for me is tomorrow, man. It's, uh, I really try not to go too much farther than that. So something I've learned in the last like 18 months is that expect the unexpected. So I don't even really make plans anymore, to be honest with you. And I've created this really nice um, solitude, private life. And that's success for me, man. So I'm just pretty much going to stay there and just see what the universe has to offer and just trust the process. Well, it's been a pleasure to getting to, to know you more over the last yeah, few man. years, man, and reconnecting. It's, uh, it's awesome, and you're a kindred spirit and a great human being. So are you, man. Congratulations on all your success, too. I brag about you all the time. So. <laughs> well, thanks, Ben. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate Any, you, my friend. Anytime, brother. 
Huge thanks to my friend Ben Mullen. There are so many things that I took away from our conversation, focusing on doing what you love, keeping your priorities straight, and letting the past go by burning the bridge that got you to where you are. Earlier this year, I had an episode with Ben Nempton where we discussed mental health, and I shared that I checked into a program when I was feeling overwhelmed in my early 20s. I found myself being lost, a bit out of control, and I knew I needed help. I'm not ashamed that I needed to seek treatment, but I know there can be a stigma around mental health. I mentioned some stats at the start of this episode, and here's one more. The rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged men. This hits home to me because I know some great, strong, accomplished people who would feel shame in talking about the feelings of depression. So I challenge you to help change the stigma. Thank you again for tuning in and for all your support. Remember, you, me, we are not almost there.